This is the Golf Under Par Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy McCullough. We are on a journey to find the information that's going to help you play the best golf of your life. Join us now as we dive in. Welcome, everybody, to the Golf Under Par Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy McCullough, here with a special guest, Dr. Dan Coughlin, who's a strength coach, a physiotherapist, and has his PhD in specifically helping golfers in, in preparing you know, for golf and, and physical training so that we've got an excellent opportunity here to talk to somebody that, that knows and does this and studied this for years to, to help us learn and to grow. Uh, so Dan, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. All right. So we, we were just talking, you, you don't golf. Uh, so I, I, I will go forego my first question that I ask everybody, which is how'd you get into golf? But I guess we can talk a little bit about what kind of gets you uh, into working with golfers then. Yeah, totally. So, um, yeah, it was it was an accident, as people have probably already gathered from the fact that I don't play the sport. Um, I suppose for me, I wanted to work as a physio in sport. And I was sampling lots of different sports. So I was working in track and field, in cycling, in um, soccer, in all sorts of different things. And um, I set up a little clinic in a golf club, started seeing a few golfers. Um, that happened to be like a regional center for um, England, the England program. Um, so they had a job as uh, for a physio, which I applied for, which is just like a part-time thing. Um, and then I got that. And then actually quickly realized that by physio, they meant strength and conditioning coach because they wanted me to do all the training stuff and then realized I had to learn all that stuff and, and kind of slowly transitioned into more of a general physio, S&C, applied sports science, bit of everything type person. And that's kind of when I did my PhD. And then really the golf just kind of took off. I then got the England national job. So I, I lead their sports science and medicine service now. And then the European tour saw what I was doing with England golf. So then they asked me to set up a service for them because they didn't have their medical service, but not a strength and conditioning service. Obviously, it was getting more popular. Um, so then I set up the strength and conditioning service with the European tour. And now the ladies European tour have asked me to do the same with them. So I'm currently setting up a sports science and strength and conditioning service for, for those guys as well. So it's kind of escalated from having no interest in the sport at all to suddenly like, yeah, working with, you know, all the, all the kind of big names, this end of the end of the world. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. So you obviously know your stuff um, for, for that being being in those situations and being able to set those things up for, for these guys, you know, we see a lot of the stuff that like I going through your social media, seeing a lot of the you know, little tests and, and things that you're doing it with some of the, the names out there. And uh, so I wanted to chat with you about, you know, what are, what are you looking at? What are you doing? Um, so the kind of question I guess would be, you know, what most people should want to know is what, what transfers from the gym onto the course, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's um, a really good question and one we've thought about quite deeply sort of at England and on and on the European Tour and of course just personally as well. And for me, I think there are a few key um, areas of transfer and my experience in golf is that quite often the areas of transfer that are sold are, are kind of swing mechanics transfer, but I actually don't think that's the main priority, certainly from our sort of approach. Um, so we we sort of devised this thing called the probability of performance impact pyramid, which is just a fancy way of saying like rank the things that are most likely to impact the golfer 
um, and will affect most people most of the time. So if I had 100 golfers, what's the thing that's most likely to have impact? And then down to the more tricky things to have impact, which still you can impact, but they're just a bit harder. And so for us at the bottom of that pyramid, i.e. the thing that we're most likely to have impact on is availability. Um, so making sure that players are healthy, injury-free, illness-free, and they can play for as long as they want to, um, both in terms of like have a busy week of golf, but also play from two to 102. Um, the next thing is, is readiness. Um, so what I mean by readiness is that we can make sure that players uh, feel good when they turn up at the golf course, they're alert and they're prepared to play. Um, and so for the tour players we work with, for example, that's like dealing with jet lag, dealing with the demands of being on the road and all that kind of thing. Um, up from that, we look at kind of different versions of movement. So, um, you know, you kind of got movement in terms of being able to to move in a way which allows you to deal with the forces of the swing better, i.e. being robust, it kind of links into availability. Um, moving better or differently in terms of moving quicker so you can generate more club speed. Um, and then sort of final thing that we think is the most difficult thing to impact is moving in a way which facilitates your kind of coaching um, uh, direction at the moment i.e helps with senseness of strike because we've changed the position at the top of your backswing or impact or something like that so using training to change your movement pattern in the swing it's probably the least likely area of impact uh, although it's still possible it's just hard whereas making you healthy making you ready to perform and helping you hit the ball further is all kind of stuff that is is bread and butter for us and, and much easier to impact most people most of the time if that makes sense yeah yeah so so basically you're thinking of just tackling those low hanging fruits, right? Rather than, you know, your health and, and wellness versus, uh, you know, specifically saying, you know, we're going to improve your, your ability to get into these positions uh, through, through the, the training or the gym program. Uh, so. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think it's really important because quite often golf fitness is flipped on its head with that. It kind of sells the swing rather than selling the, the health and well-being benefits that the research just supports so strongly. And I think it's so important for so many golfers um, and also is kind of misquoted by commentators a lot, right? Like, oh, training is going to make you injured more. It's like actually the, the biggest reason that most tour players I work with train is to stay injury free and to yeah. perform better week on week. Yeah, I've always I've always enjoyed the uh, the stronger you are, the harder you are to kill, right? Like I've always mm -hmm. phrase. So uh, kind of think of it that, that way. Of you know, the stronger that we get, the more 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 stuff we can handle, um, whether that's on the course or off the course. So just make sure make sure that much better uh, in in all areas. Yeah, hundred percent. So so curious as to you know you're setting up all these uh, sports science type stuff with with all these different uh, associations or, or, or companies groups or whatever uh, so what are some of the things that you're you're specifically having them you know from assessment standpoint of, of looking at and, and 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 tracking over over the long term yeah good question so we we have a few different things that we do for assessment um i suppose assessment can be broken down into lots of different categories as well right like you have your kind of typical performance assessment which is how do i hit the ball further and or whatever um, you then ha might have traditionally like a movement screen, which is identified to find things that might link into your golf swing, which we don't use so much, but, um, you know, it's kind of a category to be aware of. I think you then have kind of robustness, specific robustness tests that you can do to look at 
um, likelihood of injury in people in general, knowing the kind of injury history of the sport or specific people who have specific injury histories that you want to kind of keep an eye on and monitor. Then you have your kind of monitoring in terms of like your your day-to-day stuff that you might want to keep an eye on, which is kind of very player specific around maybe it's readiness, maybe again, it's around injury, maybe it's around performance. So there's, and then you have obviously all the health stuff that you might look at, which could be outside of us, right? It could be like, we have skin cancer screenings on tour that players come in for or um, whatever other kind of health screenings that we have going on. So there's loads of levels to assessment. And I think most of the time in golf, people just think about like your TPI movement screen or something. Yeah. But actually, we have all these different layers going on all the time. And um, what you'll find is that most of the layers outside of the performance testing are quite nuanced for us. Like we don't have a standard assessment process we have like dependent on the individual so if i start with like that that kind of higher level performance side um we look at isometric mid-thigh pull which is um for those who don't know you stand on some force plates you get yourself in the position like you're atop of a deadlift so the bar is kind of in the middle of your thigh and you pull the bar up as hard and fast as you can. So you're pushing through the force plates really hard and the bar doesn't move, it's kind of fixed, so it doesn't move. And you do that for five seconds. And then from that, we can just see how much force you can produce, i.e. how strong you are. Um, And we do it because it's a really low skill measure of strength um, that any player can do regardless of training history and they can do in the middle of a tournament and they're fine. Um, The other thing we look at is counter movement jump. So how high can you jump? we look at that on force plates and we calculate positive impulse from that. Um, we don't look at jump height because if player puts on mass, then they get penalized, you know? So if you give them a training program for six weeks, eight weeks, they start getting heavier. They don't jump as high. You think you're getting worse, but you're not. So instead yeah. we look at impulse um, when they jump and impulse is really predictive of club head speed in tour players. We've done some research on that. Um, so we're pretty confident in what sort of changes equal, what sort of distance. Um, so there are like performance measures from like a screening perspective. We don't screen at all, actually. Um, we don't use any assessments, FMS, TPI, nothing like that. But what we lo- do is look at the problem in, in front of us, i.e. we'll maybe watch a player warm up, watch a player train, just observe and, and kind of be aware of different movement uh, patterns that they're comfortable with or not comfortable with. Then we'll have a conversation with them and their coach and see if they've got any specific issues they want us to look at so for example if their lead foot spins out when they're you know coming into impact we might look at their hip range of movement um if they struggle with the top you know getting into the right position at the top of the back swing we might look at thoracic rotation or whatever it is but we do it on a kind of individual level rather than a standardized screen just when called for um, in terms of robustness measures as injury risk measures, neck pain and back pain are two of the most common um, injury sites in players. So fairly routinely, we do um, a maximal force test with the player's neck where they have to hold their neck in neutral and we try and pull them out of position. We use a force sensor to, to measure that um, just to see where their neck strength is. And also if they get injured, what we need to rehab them back to. And we also do something quite similar with the trunk where we try and pull them out of position. And with a force sense, we measure how much force we have to apply before they lose sort of neutral. 
um, and then that kind of helps us gauge their trunk strength, which could you know help with back pain, um, or at least again post rehab what we're building them back up to. And then sometimes we'll do some specific ones like you know holding uh, you know holding someone in like prone position in in extension and seeing how long they can hold it for with a weight or whatever it might be. We'll look at some specific things, maybe like adductor strength or or whatever. But um, at that level, it gets more like bespoke depending on the player's history. Um, and then from like a medical screening perspective, I've, I've already kind of mentioned, but we we might do some wellness stuff from a monitoring perspective, but we um, we have skin cancer screenings and we have doctors on site all the time who are helping with different things uh, for different players. So kind of a long answer, but just trying to get across the, the nuance that's involved and the kind of beyond traditional screening sort of approach that we we tend to use on tour and in England. Yeah, so, so obviously the uh, from a movement and physical standpoint outside of, you know, your, your mid-thigh pull and like the, the, the impulse from the jump, it, it's all dependent upon those needs that you kind of see as you just go through some, some general movements. Is that? Yeah, 100%. So like if I'm meeting a player for the first time, um, and we're talking about that kind of movement side, whereas some people might take them through a, a, a screening, what I'll tend to do is just say to them, oh, do a warm up and just put them on the spot and get them to do the warm up that they normally do. Um, and then see how they prepare. Like, oh, you're going to warm up for this ISO pull. It's basically like you're getting ready for a max effort deadlift, warm up how you want, how you would warm up in the gym. And then I'll just observe them warm up. Um, if they've got a good warm-up routine, quite often you can see all the movement patterns that you want from that anyway. And if I see something of interest, I'll grab a little video of it so that we can use it as a reference point for the future. Um, or we can explore it more in later on in the session. If they look at me like I don't know how to warm up, then I'll take them through a standard warm-up, but then do the same thing. Once they know it, I'll get them to run through it a few times. I'll video bits that are worth monitoring in the future or investigating further. Um, and then I'll speak to them and their coach about issues that they're having in the swing. And sometimes people just say, oh, I've not got any issues. I just want to get strong and robust and not get injured and hit the ball further, in which case that's fine. Or if they say, yeah, I've got this problem that I've really been struggling with. We think it might be physical. I'll look at that. Okay. Okay. Um, I think it might be beneficial if we uh, maybe talk to you, mostly people, maybe those that don't have a uh, regular routine for, for warming up, you know, what are some main things that they should be, be tackling? Yeah. So um, I guess first off, like there are quite a lot of good warmups out there and I think there isn't like a one size fits all with it. So just go and find some cool stuff and try it out and see how you feel. I, th I think generally it's good just to start with something general and then just tweak it and change it depending on how you feel um i'm sure we'll kind of um share some of the ways to contact me you know down the line but if you come onto my instagram or something i've got loads of you know videos of players warming up and doing mobility stuff so just nick some stuff off there um in general like most sports you go through a bit of a ramp process so you try to raise your heart rate up a little bit then you do some activation and mobilization stuff so move through some different shapes and um, things like that and then you might do some potentiation so something explosive or heavy so lift something or jump um, so a lot of our guys they might do five minutes on a bike first or they might use the mobility work as a way of getting their heart rate up and then they'll just go through lots of dynamic movements um, you know the kind of kind of common stuff that most people do in a lot of sports before doing something a little bit explosive 
And then actually really importantly, they then warm up for golf using golf stuff, right? So like that's not job done. I think sometimes the bit that's missed actually is the most important part of the warm up. Even if you cut the physical warm up is probably working through the clubs and getting yourself to a position that you're ready to play. Um, so rather than just rock up and turn up at the first tee and hit your first shot there, like spend some time putting, chipping, pitching, working through the through the bag a little bit um and and kind of warm up that way as well it's really important yeah yeah, that's fine okay um so trying things out and then and seeing what works for best for you uh there uh so with regards to talking the warm-up and then getting into you know workout what are some things that you know you see that most golfers um kind of either don't do don't that you would like for them to do to make their workout more effective or better Mm-hmm. I think right. So the 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 big thing with that question, I suppose, is that like getting better is very context dependent. Now, obviously, I'll I'll get into the question in a second, but I think um, there aren't any kind of general one size fits all mistakes or errors that people make because it kind of depends on what they're working towards. Um, but I think in that probably the biggest error that I see is people don't understand what they're working towards, or if they do understand what they're working towards, they don't understand the best way to achieve it. Um, So you'll often have someone who just works out as a bit of a tick box. They they know they need to do it, but they don't like really understand what they're trying to achieve by doing it at the moment um, and how to measure impact and how to achieve it through effective training. And then the second thing is if they understand what they're trying to work on, i.e. they say I'm trying to get stronger or I'm trying to get more stable or whatever, they maybe don't understand exactly what that means and how the program should look to achieve that. And you'll see things like, for example, I'm trying to get stronger and then they're doing, you know, three sets of 10 in their exercise. It's like, no, you should be doing like four or five sets of three, not three sets of 10 or whatever it might be. Um, So understand what you're trying to achieve and then once you understand that, really try and understand what's the best way of achieving that, most efficient way of achieving that. Um, so that would be one thing. I think the next thing is that people include a lot of unnecessary stuff. Like if you, you know, great if you just want to train loads, that's fine. But like most people train to um, help their sport. They don't train because training is their you know, main yeah. love. Um, so that means that you want it to be as minimal as possible. Like if you can do five exercises instead of 10, just do five. If you can do half an hour instead of an hour, just do half an hour. If you can train three times a week instead of six times a week, train three times a week. So try and just cut out all the rubbish from the program and make sure that everything has a purpose. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of very important. Um, and then Finally, I think the next thing is that there's there's a bit of a polarized debate in golf at the moment, I think, where you've got some people who are really like hyper specific on BOSU balls, doing balance work, doing loads of rotational stuff, really kind of golfy looking stuff, which is broadly accepted by the the kind of strength and conditioning and research led community to be not very good. Um, you then have the people who are trying to combat that just saying, oh, just squat and deadlift and bench press and you'll be fine. And they're sort of pushing back so hard that they're massively oversimplifying the message because there's way more to it than that. Otherwise, people wouldn't make a living out of it. Um, So I think just appreciate that there's some real nuance and detail to what you need to do. And I think getting some good help is is kind of an important step. Yeah, whenever there's the, the 
two huge differences in size. It's, it's almost always the correct answer in the middle, right? Like, yeah, you don't need to be standing on the BOSUs. And yeah, you know, obviously squats, deadlift, especially if you do some single leg stuff, that's going to help your balance. Um, but I think I've seen you, you talk, um, I think we'll get into this maybe a little bit later too, but specifically about, you know, some of the, the uh, balance stuff uh, on, your, on your social media and, you know, uh, where, where, where's that, you know, the right pendulum kind of swing one way versus the other way. Uh, so yeah and it's just again it's appreciating that detail isn't it it's like um a lot of people say oh just squat and do five sets of five or if you're trying to do hypertrophy do four sets of eight or something and it's like well it's not really quite that simple like some people might need um you know lower like reps like threes triples some people might need to be doing fives rarely do you need to do eights and things but again it's just the detail in picking those reps the sets the the rest periods like deciding whether an individual based on their body shape and size and preferences is going to have a trap bar deadlift a normal deadlift a sumo deadlift or, you know they're, they're kind of small decisions but they're relatively important decisions you know like when we're working with Chris Wood, who's six foot, whatever he is, six foot six, maybe, or seven, or I don't know, he's, he's tall. Um, you know, if we give him back squats and deadlifts from the floor, like he's just going to be really uncomfortable with it for him. So the nuance isn't just, oh, squat and deadlift, that'd be terrible advice for him. Like get him to do a trap bar deadlift or raise it up a little bit because he's quite tall or get him to do a sumo deadlift or um, get him to do a half squat. Or So just those little details around the programming, I think, matter for the individual. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, they were always talking about needing to individualize uh, those these programs too. So definitely it's in there. So uh, something you said that had brought me a question and I already forgot it. Um, but <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go on to the next question that we had here talking about, you know, importance of intention. We hear about, you know, being uh, with, we'll just use Phil Mickelson here most recently at the PGA Championship. You know, he talked about his focus and, and being, uh, intentional on, on the things that he's doing on the course and how sometimes that can be a challenge. But, you know, we, we also hear that with regards to being in the gym too. So what, what kind of benefit does that intention, you know, give people in with, with regards to, you know, their squats, their jumps, their you know, maybe med ball throws, those kinds of things. Yeah, definitely. Good question. So I think intent or being intentional, I think fits into sort of two categories for me one is one that we've almost already covered which is people sometimes aren't intentional enough about the purpose of training in the first place like the best players that I work with on you know the highest levels they know exactly what they want to get out from their program and they know why the stuff that we're putting in there is there and that is being intentional it's being intentional about your practice isn't it um, you know, it's like rather than just saying, I want to get better at golf and I'm going to go and spend three hours doing some random putting practice. You've actually thought, OK, this is the challenge that I have in my game at the moment. This is how I'm going to address it. Um, so being intentional in the programming and the approach to your training so that it gives you the outcomes that you want is important, probably the most important thing in training, because otherwise you're just doing a load of like stuff. And I definitely work, have worked with enough people who I try and change course on where they come in and they're really bought into the gym and they train a lot, but they just do a bunch of stuff and it doesn't really help them. Even if the stuff on paper looks good, like it's not working towards the goal that they need to achieve and therefore it's not really helping them progress. 
Um, so that's a version of intentionality, which I think is worth considering. Um, you know, take it seriously, think about it deeply. Um, the next bit is obviously the intent of the exercise, like how much effort am I putting into that exercise? Um, and I think that's really important because to stress your system enough to cause the physiological adaptations that you want to get better requires you to like work hard enough to stress your system enough for that stuff to happen. And if you're just doing everything at like a percentage below that, like 50% F on your jumps or something, you're just not going to get any better because you're not going to force the adaptations. Um, so, you know, if you take lifting something heavy, for example, regardless of what, like deadlift, bench press, whatever, um, you have to, you don't have to max out. You don't have to go to failure all the time. So you don't have to go to like a 10 out of 10, but you have to be working somewhere between maybe like a seven out of 10 and a 10 out of 10. So you should be working most of the time where you have like three reps left in the tank after you've done your five reps within your set um, to elicit that adaptation. And it's interesting because you work, when you work with someone who's relatively new to lifting, quite often I'll say, oh, okay, do a trap bar deadlift, let's say. And then I'll get them to score it out of 10. So a 10 is you can do zero more reps after you've finished your five. Um, a nine is you could do one more. An eight is you could do two more. A seven is you could do three more, etc. And I'll say, oh, what was that? And they'll say, oh, that was a nine. And then I'll add some weight. And they'll say that was a nine. Then I'll add some more weight. They'll go, oh, that was an eight. Because now they're starting to realize that they've got more ability than they expected. And then you actually get like way beyond what they thought was a nine or 10 by the time you're actually hitting a nine or 10. And then they have this realization that actually I've been working like 20 or 30% lower just because I didn't believe in my ability essentially. And experiencing what hard is allows them to like, understand that when they're not maxing out but when they're training hard they are actually training hard um and again you see lots of people who think they're training hard but they're just not training hard enough and that's why they don't get better um and then in terms of the explosive work well it's kind of easy for me just to put on weight and say lift that and get to a point where you're hitting max intent because otherwise it's not getting up um but when you jump or throw it's kind of really difficult to gauge intent because I can't just keep adding weight until you can't do it anymore like it's about being light and so that just takes a conscious effort to be as fast as you can and as explosive as you can because if you're trying to get faster but you're not actually trying to move fast because you're like you know just coasting through your jumps or something you're not going to get faster you're not going to get more explosive so it's really important again just like every throw every jump just switch on and put as much effort in as possible. And we use velocity monitors and things for that as well so that we can set people targets. But uh, for those people who don't have access to it, they just need their mindset in the right place each each rep. All right, so do you do you recommend then the, like, going by the REP or the RII, the RIR? With, with yeah, so, or? yeah, so what we do is um, we generally don't program by percentage because it fluctuates too much i think especially with the tour players like we can't test their maxes anyway because they're on the road so much and it would be silly to be doing that at tournaments and stuff most of the time um and then because of the travel the time zone changes and everything else that goes on like their relative efforts just change all the time because sometimes they're tired sometimes they're not sometimes they've played five events in a row and sometimes they're fresh um, so we don't use percentages. We set an RPE 
um, or and or an RIR. So just like I described, how hard are you working out of 10 or yeah. how many reps do you have left um, after you finished your allocation? But then when they're with us, most of the time, very few do this without us, but we, um, we tend to strap a velocity monitor on as well, something like a push band or something like that. Um, so we can see the, the effort that they're working at and their velocity drop-offs and how fast they're moving and set them targets as well. So if it's an explosive one, we can say, you know, we want you a meter per second on this jump and the athlete can kind of try and almost compete against the number on the screen. Um, it kind of helps drive a bit of intent and also make sure we're, we're programming right and their RIRs or RPEs match the numbers that we're seeing. Yeah, so I think that feedback is, is critical, especially when you're talking, like you said, the speed and, and power stuff, because it does give you that number. It creates a game, right? Like I just had a, a gentleman I was working with. He was uh, coming back from from knee injury and looking to play football again. And uh, and. <laughs> doing some some jumps and ha just right, take measure here we go and like see how far you jump the first time okay and i'll beat that okay mm -hmm. yeah like um and you know i think we i think he he wanted to keep going after like 10 minutes and i'm like no we're probably we're probably exhausted at this point <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, totally. And it's exactly the same attitude that you'd have to, like, if you wanted to max out on your swinging, like the best thing that you can do is if you've got access to it, if you're lucky enough to have access, get a trap man or something out, and then swing as fast as you can, because as soon as you see that number, you want to beat it again. Whereas if you have no measure, it's just sometimes too easy to coast and not not move forward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Awesome. So wanted to, 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 to chat with you just briefly about a couple things that I saw uh, through your posts and, and, and kind of talk, break them down for, for the listeners and, and for my better understanding, I guess, as well. But how are you programming in your clusters into the, in the training? So, you know, the, the, the small reps and, and different timings with, with those kinds of yeah so with um certainly with more advanced athletes that i'm working with we're using cluster sets so for people who don't know that might be that i set someone five sets of three reps on a back squat um, but instead of doing three reps they do one then re-rack the bar wait for 15 to 30 seconds or something and then do another one and then another one with those gaps in between each rep and then they take their four minute break before going back to their next three as a cluster um, or you can do it with like two, two ones as well. If you're trying to get a bit more volume in for something like hypertrophy or something. Um, so the reason, the reason that I've been using that a lot is that, um, with, with golf, we don't really want people doing like grindy, slow, really hard things because we want, you know, some real quality. We want some real intent. We want a bit of speed in the lift as well. We don't want it going to a point where it's really slow a lot of the time because there's going to be a little bit less transfer of that. And so if we're driving, if we're trying to drive strength on um, and we're, we're trying to keep them kind of moving really well through the lift, uh, when they're getting to those really big weights where they're just, they're, you know, they're, they're quite advanced. Um, clusters is just a really nice way of pushing that on because, um, again, it keeps the quality in the rep. It keeps a bit of velocity to the rep as well. But they can lift some really big numbers because they're taking those micro rests in between. Um, so they can be really, really helpful in that regard. I don't tend to overuse them. I tend to use them like occasionally, definitely in season. I find people feel less fatigued after doing a cluster versus a relative effort 
on um you know like a traditional so if i get them doing five sets of three cluster versus five sets of three on a on a wednesday before a thursday tournament the people who had the clusters will probably feel a little bit better a little bit more recovered a bit fresher because they haven't been grindy and and working to that kind of absolute fatigue um so yeah, it's be, I, I don't overuse them, but I use them a lot in season. I use them a lot with advanced guys for those reasons. And I tend to only use them for like one or two lifts. So like the key lifts at the beginning. So they won't cluster everything, but it'll be like bench press or some overhead press or some deadlifts or some squats or something. Um, and yeah, they've been quite effective. And to be honest, the athletes quite like them as well because they get to like grind it or not grind out because they're moving well, but like they get to lift a big weight and feel good. Um, yeah. So it kind of helps them. Okay, very interesting. Uh, and so, do you base that off of, again, to, since we just had the discussion about the RPG, are we basing um, the weight more based on that aspect then? Of- yeah, so I, I tend to, um, when I program, I tend to do a few things with those sorts of lifts. I'll have an RPE or RIR, um, and then like a description of how I want it to feel or look. And then if we've got, if we're lucky enough to be you know, able to get a velocity monitor on them, I'll include that as well, but because they don't, the description sometimes helps. Um, so I'll say like, right, I want you an RPE eight. Um, but then I'll say it should be smooth and not feel slow and grindy. And then I'll say, um, you know, like if they're with us, maybe like uh, if it was a squat, say 0.5 meters per second or something like that. Um, so that we're not starting to see them go down to the 0.2s or something where it's really kind of clearly slow. Um, and then if I was with them, I might also look at velocity drop off as well um, and not not want to see like over 15, you know, around 15% or 20% or something would be like crazy too much and we'd maybe want them nearer, nearer like a 10. Yeah, yeah, I mean, preferably like it would be even close to nothing with the rest, but you just wouldn't want to see it like going going to a high number. Right, Yeah. Uh, all right, so then the other one that I've seen you, you talk about a little bit recently is the split stance uh, deadlift. And so with regards to, you know, why using it versus regular deadlift or maybe like a single leg deadlift? Yeah, no, I think um, it's an interesting one. So just again, for people who don't know the exercises, so the um, the staggered stance versions I'm using. So one is that I'll get someone in a trap bar deadlift Um I'll get them to stagger their stance. So one slight, one leg is slightly forward, one leg slightly back, almost like a, a lunge position, but much tighter than a lunge position because there's a shorter distance between the front leg and the back, back leg. And it's a bit like a single leg squat or single leg deadlift where they're pushing through the front foot more than the back foot. But the back foot's there to offer a little bit of balance and stability so that they're not, they can lift heavy and hard, basically. Whereas if I asked them to do it just standing on one leg, they wouldn't have very much stability. Um, and that's kind of relative to a single leg squat, but also relative to, say, a lunge, actually, where a lunge or a split squat, there is, or, a, you know, rear foot elevated split squat as well, there's this kind of stability challenge that makes it hard to really load. Um, so, that is kind of the trap bar version. The other one that uses like um, a hand supported safety bar split squat, which I don't think is on the Instagram at the moment, but um, you, you have a safety bar, which is a bar that kind of wraps around your neck a little bit over your shoulders. And that means that you can take your hands off and you can hold on to something while you split squat. 
Um, the other option that I use sometimes is a staggered stance Romanian deadlift, which is a Romanian deadlift, like a single leg Romanian deadlift, which people have probably done before, except again, that rear foot is just touching the floor for a bit of balance so that you can load it up more. And the reason I do that is if I'm after kind of a unilateral, you know, single leg type exercise, um, balance is a kind of isn't a general quality it's quite a specific quality so not only is there not a massive balance challenge in golf because you are on a stable surface all the time even when you're in sand it's pretty stable and you screw your feet in and you know um but even if you weren't on a stable surface even if you're a gymnast having to do a handstand like the the qualities of balance are such that it's essentially a skill um and if you're looking for transfer to sports performance, the best way to develop your balance for the sport is by doing the sports. The best way for a gymnast to learn to handstand is to do handstands, not to do some overhead control exercise in the gym. Um, the slight caveat to that, of course, is if you're rehabbing someone, sometimes there's relevance to doing balance training, but that's, that's kind of a different topic outside of the performance realm. Um, so with that in mind, with balance being a general and not specific kind of quality or specific, not general quality and not something we can really develop in the gym for golf. Um, I figure like I'm much more interested in just developing strength through one limb than I am having the stability challenge. And by getting people to stagger stance and have the rear foot down in their RDLs or in their um, deadlifts or using the hand support for their split squats, it takes away the balance challenge completely of being on one leg which means that you can just really drive the weight or you can drive the kind of explosive strength qualities, depending on the exercise. We also do like a staggered stance trap bar jump as well. Um, if we want them to be explosive strength focused on one leg and it's just a way of working one leg for the athletic quality you're after without the constraint of like, Oh, I'm struggling to balance. Um, so it works quite nicely. So mostly just kind of focusing on that, the pure strength of that single leg rather than the, the balance with the strength component with, with most of the single leg activities is, is the main reason. Yeah, hundred percent. We're basically trying to rip out any balance challenge by saying, right, with the safety bar, you can hold on or you can, you, you can stagger your stance. And I think that's true of say like the RDL, loads of people do single leg RDLs in golf. And it's like, it's such a diluted exercise because the balance is so difficult for a single leg Romanian deadlift that you can't load it heavy. So then if you can't load it heavier, like what physiological adaptation is it driving other than balance and more balance is specific, not general. So it doesn't transfer. Um, so it kind of becomes a bit pointless. Where as soon as you put the rear leg down, the balance challenge is gone and you can now make it quite heavy and you can get really kind of strong through, you know, in a unilateral sort of one legged exercise, relatively one leg, obviously the back leg does something. But. Awesome. All right. So that was the last little bit of questions that we had there in through a quick and rapid round. I call it the mulligan round. Um, basically you could, you get to skip one question if you, if you want. Uh, if it comes down to nothing too crazy. Uh, sometimes I throw on a crazy one, but not nothing for you today. Uh, so what would be the superhero power that you would want? Oh God. I don't know. Um, maybe flying. That'd be quite cool. Especially if it was fast. Cause then I wouldn't need to get planes at the moment and I could skip all the COVID rubbish. <laughs> Great. Um, what's your go-to karaoke song? Ah, um, don't stop me now. Definitely. Awesome. Good one. Um, what's the weirdest golf term you've heard? Especially as not. Uh, <laughs> do you know what? I think mulligan actually. Like, yeah, it's weird. It's a strange, strange word. When I first came across that, I was like, where, where, how did that even like originate? 
Yeah, I, don't, I actually don't know. I'll have to uh, do some research on that one, figure out why. Mm. Uh, what's a favorite exercise or drill for your, for your personal life? For my personal life, um, time out on the bike, I'd say, like going out for, going out for a bike ride, favorite exercise. All right. Uh, what's it take you want people to have uh, from today's conversation? Uh, probably the take home is just the, um, well, that's a really good question, actually. I'm not quite sure what take home is. Um, I think hopefully it's just kind of, uh, opening your eyes to some of the, I'm sure people interested in this will already be aware because they're trying to educate themselves about the topic, but just some of the nuance and complexity around some of the decisions that we make. Um, it's not as simple as squat, hinge, push, pull, uh, although we use a lot of that stuff, there's kind of a bit of detail to, to how we decide to prescribe it and how we pick the right exercises and how we test and make those decisions. And, um, hopefully that's interesting because, you know, it's the sort of stuff that you do with the elite end that I think transfers to everybody. Yeah, yeah, that's fun. All right, so this one uh, is if you had a professional and they could either hit the T-ball for you or the putt for you, which one would you take? You've played a, couple, a little bit of golf, I know. So which one? Yeah, so I, I'd take the putt because like um, I always used to play snooker and there's something like when I was young, so my dad was well into it. So there's something quite satisfying, I think, about the putting and like actually getting the ball in the hole so they can do the rest and I'll just I'll take the putt. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, before you go, let's uh, see what can people get into um, finding more about you and what you're doing yeah, uh, so if people want to get in touch, you're welcome. Um, but come and have a look at my Instagram page, which is just at Dr. Dan Coglin. Um, my Twitter is the same, Dr. Dan Coglin. And then um, I've got a website as well, which is just dancoglin.com. So you can come and have a look and send me a DM if you want. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of the Golf Under Par podcast. We'll have that information uh, that Dan just shared in the show notes. So check it out there and uh, learn more from him on his honest stuff and uh, thank you so much for listening and Dan thank you for coming on yeah no worries thanks for having me thank you guys for listening to this episode hopefully you've enjoyed this content on the go if you found it helpful please share with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes this allows us to reach more golfers just like you that want to play under par do you want to be stronger and healthier well, I've got a resource, Golf Fitness Tips. It's a free Facebook group where we talk about how to take care of our bodies so that we can play more golf, we can play golf longer in life, and we can play better on the course. If that interests you, then check out the link below or search for Golf Fitness Tips on Facebook.